just just go before the Lord and and do what uh, we have come here to do, and that is to worship Him. Uh, and uh, regardless of uh, the the things that you carry in your heart and your mind right now, because of things that have happened, maybe this very morning, or perhaps a day or two ago this past week, maybe you're in a season of trial, or maybe when you're considered the righteousness of God, and at the same time you reflect on the fact that you don't quite measure up, that all you can think about is the sins that are, that are before you. And so the Lord invites us just to come to Christ, to come to him this morning to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. The only qualification that you need to come before the presence of God is to recognize that you don't measure up to the righteousness of God and that you need the righteousness of Christ to come upon you. And so let us go before the Lord and let us listen attentively to his word and be encouraged by what he means to, to teach us this morning. Let us go before the Lord and cast our anxieties upon him and pray to him, to the God who listens to the prayers of his people. And let us lift up our voices uh, to proclaim the, the glorious excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let us begin this morning by worshiping through song. Amen. Church, let's stand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, Support me in the whelming flood When all around my soul gives way He then is all my hope and say On Christ the solid rock I stand All of the ground is sinking sand All of the ground is sinking sand When he shall All of the ground is sinking sand. 
righteousness, oh God, how I need you. It is well, it is well with my soul. When peace, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea. Billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is
not just this morning, but always. God, we come to you humbled, Lord, because of the cross. Lord, there is nothing in our power that we could have ever done to save our own souls. but only through Christ Jesus, your Son, Lord. It is only in Christ that we can stand firm in knowing, Lord, that we have been saved by the grace of God through His Son, Jesus, paying the full price for the sins of the world, for those who believe, for His people. God, today I pray, God, that we may sit under that truth and know that it is well with our souls, Lord. God, I pray you may now lead us into a time where we can be edified by your word. May your spirit speak to us, Lord. May your word speak loud and clear to our ears and our hearts. May we be encouraged. May we be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Church, you may be seated. I'm going to read from Second Corinthians five twenty-one, and we'll read down to chapter six, verse two, and then we'll spend some time in prayer. Second Corinthians five twenty-one. For our sake. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Man, let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Lord, what a joy it is to know that that our sins have been nailed to the cross. And that we don't bear them anymore. Lord, we worship the Lord Jesus, the Son of God who knew no sin, 
and took on our sin and died for our sins so that the unrighteous, so that sinners like us might then become the righteousness of God. We praise you, Father, for your great grace, for your mercy and kindness. Thank you for this righteousness that you have given to us freely through the cross of Jesus Christ. We praise you, Lord, that we don't carry them anymore. And even though we know this, because your word tells us so, we oftentimes feel how undeserving we are of your grace. Even though we no longer bear these sins, God, our sins oftentimes are there before us. And we accuse our own selves because we fail to measure up. Because we fail to do what is right. God, we just, we come before you and we ask that you might forgive us, Lord, of our sins. Forgive us for our transgressions, Lord, and also forgive us for holding on to our sins when we no longer have reasons to hold on to them and bear them and carry them. Forgive us for the times that we fail to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a tendency to treat our salvation as a past event, forgetting that salvation is Today, salvation is here and now, and salvation is our continually, every single day, coming to Christ and continuing to put our trust in Him and His finished work on our behalf. And we thank you, Father, that today is a favorable time to continue to walk in your salvation and to live out this salvation and this righteousness that you have freely given to us. And we thank you, Lord, because you continue to be faithful. Not because we are deserving, but you are faithful to us because you have made us righteous through Jesus Christ. Lord, prevent us from receiving your grace in vain. Help us, Lord, to not put our trust in our own works, but help us to continue to put our faith in the finished work of Christ. And we do pray that you would give us the grace and the strength to live out your righteousness. Give us the grace to continue to walk in a manner that pleases you. Give us the strength to continue to walk in the fear of the Lord. Father, we pray this morning for, for the Merrills, Lord, and God, we pray that you would sustain them. Help, Lord, help Dwight as he continues to struggle, Lord, with his Parkinson's. May he continue to put his hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be satisfied in him. 
We pray for his dear wife, Lord. Continue to give her strength, Lord, each day. Renew that strength. Help her to abide in the vine who is Christ. Help them both to know, Lord, that their lives matter a great deal to you and that you love them and that you care for them. Father, we pray for dear sister Sharon. Lord, we pray that you would help her to continue to trust in her dear Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that her mind and heart be filled with your peace. Help her to keep her mind stayed and steadied on the Lord. Father, we pray for her son, Brandon, and we ask, God, that you would compel him to come to Christ. We pray, God, that you would move the blinders from his eyes so that he might behold the Lord Jesus, that he would recognize his need for the righteousness of the Lord. Lord, soften his heart to bring a conviction of sin upon his life, and we pray, God, that he would run to the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray for, for those in a season of trial. Lord, we pray for those who are suffering. We pray, Lord, for those of us who do not have the strength to continue on. Lord, help us to commit our ways to you and to trust that you will graciously act. Help us to trust in the pattern that we see in the scriptures, Lord, that you are always faithful to your people. Help us to trust in the Lord Jesus as our elder brother who died to make a family, who died to bring in siblings into the household of God. He is not like Cain, who murdered his brother and didn't consider himself a keeper of his brother, but our Lord Jesus is an, our wonderful and gracious elder brother who keeps all of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And this elder brother knows what it is to suffer. Help us, Lord, to continue to trust in our dear Jesus. Lord, we pray for the Crocnollies as they continue to minister in Africa. Father, we pray that through their efforts in this clinic, as they continue to help those in need, as they continue to heal with their hands, that all these things would function as an appeal to sinners to come to Christ. Lord, energize them for the work. Give them a boldness to continue to preach the gospel. Lord, provide for their every need. We pray that you would protect their family, protect their marriage, Lord. And that you would continue to use them mightily, Lord, for your glory. God, we pray for a great salvation, Lord. 
Lord, your word tells us that you are righteous in saving sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would display your great righteousness in bringing many sinners to come to Jesus Christ. We pray for a wonderful and glorious salvation in New England. We pray that as many as have been appointed to receive the grace of God, that they would come and receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for our country, and your word tells us to pray for those who are above us, Lord, and we pray for the president, and we ask that you would give him understanding and knowledge and wisdom. Father, we pray that you would protect his family, his health, And Lord, we pray that he would come to know the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that he would know the Savior, that he would trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and in that righteousness alone. And Lord, we pray for those who, who work in the field of engineering. Father, we pray that you would bless the work of their hands and bless the work of their minds. Lord, keep their minds sharp and focused that they may do their work with excellency. Lord, we pray that you would give them favor in the workplace and those that they work with. And Lord, we pray that you, you would prosper the work of their hands and that in all that they do, that they would ultimately work for the pleasure of their master who is in heaven. Father, we trust you for all of these things, God, and we look forward to all that you are going to do, and we pray these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So please turn with me to Psalm, the book of Psalms, chapter 17. Psalm 17, where we pick it up in verse 1 and read down to the end of the psalm. Seventeen, verse 1. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regards to the work of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion, 
lurking in an ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would graciously and powerfully speak to us this morning. Encourage us by the grace of your word. Speak to us this morning and may we have listening ears so that we may receive your word. And we pray that you would take this word and plant it deep in our hearts, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the Gospels, Jesus tells a parable, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, a parable of the soils, the different soils, and he compares or he describes one particular soil as one filled with many rocks. It's a rocky soil, and seeds fall upon the rocky soil, and they don't take roots. And he likens that to those who receive the Word of God, they receive it immediately, they receive it with joy, but then on account of persecution and tribulation because of their association with God or because of their faith in the Lord. This persecution comes and they don't last. They immediately fall away. It's for this reason that Jesus tells us elsewhere that we must count the cost, the cost of following the Lord Jesus with our life. And certainly times of tribulation and persecution or times such as suffering, whether it's on account of bearing the name of Christ or not, can lend itself to be an opportunity for us to walk away from the Lord. Theodore Beza, who took up the pulpit after John Calvin there in Geneva, was, it is said that he personally experienced deliverance from the Lord about 600 times. And during his tenure there in Geneva, as a pastor, there was a great persecution of the church. And 600 times of receiving the deliverance of the Lord Jesus time and time and time and time again. 600 times there was another opportunity to walk away from the Lord. But he remained faithful. Continued steadfast in the Lord. And so in his own personal life, he witnessed a pattern, and that is a pattern of God's faithfulness, a faithfulness to his people because of God's personal relationship with his people. As we turn to the psalm, the psalm is grounded in a similar pattern, and it's a pattern that's as old as the Old Testament. And when we turn our attention to the psalm, we read, the words of a desperate man who makes desperate pleas before the Lord. And one of the things that's remarkable about his pleas is how he grounds his pleas before the Lord, but more on that a little bit later. But first, let us consider his pleas. Consider his desperate plea generated by a dire affliction. As you 
work your way through the psalm, I think you can make a good argument that perhaps the thing that he's experiencing is a, a false accusation. Someone has perhaps said some things about him that weren't true, accused him of crimes that he did not commit. But I think it would be helpful for us to sort of broaden this out a little bit. Seeing the passage deals more broadly to the topic of the persecution of the righteous. I mean, one of the reasons, or the main reason why he's sort of in this affliction and in the season of trial is because he is a righteous man. And as you, maybe you notice as we work through the passage that he, he proclaims an innocence, a righteousness. But this isn't just a pleas by a man who is just innocent or proclaiming a innocence about him, but he really speaks to the quality of his innocence, to the nature of his innocence. The pleas of an innocent man who is persecuted for his being righteous. And it isn't a surprise as a king of Israel that comes with enemies enemies without, enemies within, but even as Christians today, right, in the Gospels and other places in the New Testament tells us or to expect that those who bear the name of Jesus Christ will be persecuted. John 15, 20, the Lord Jesus says, remember the word that I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus tells us, that it is those who bear the name of Jesus Christ, that you can expect persecution because of your close association to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is our heavenly master, and we are but his servants. And if they have persecuted the Lord Jesus, then we can expect that his servants as well will be persecuted. And because of our close association, our relationship to the Lord Jesus, it's like wearing nothing but Yankee attire and, wearing, and, and just waving a large Yankee flag at Fenway Stadium in the middle of a, Bet, a Red Sox game. Right, you'll probably be lucky to get out of there alive. I'm sure it's not that bad. But regardless, right, you're attracting a certain kind of attention. Right, you're sticking out like a sore thumb. And it's similar to those who profess the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why we can expect persecution is because we are no longer like the world. John 3.20, Jesus says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, let his works should be exposed. Right, because we're no longer of the world. And in that same section, it tells us that those who are in the darkness, they love the darkness, but those who are in the light, they no longer love the darkness. As you immediately become noticeable that you are no longer a part of the world. And because you're no longer a part of the world, then your walk is different than everyone else's. Second Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, speaking to the kind of persecution, I'm persuaded that 
most likely the kind of persecution that Christians will face or face today is not of the physical kind. I mean, here in Western society, in our country, most likely, if persecution becomes worse, and I think the scriptures give us reasons to believe that we can only expect persecution to get worse, but most likely it may not be of a physical kind. This was the kind of persecution that the Christians faced that Peter wrote his letter to. Not so much a physical violence, but a violence of words, slander, false accusation, gossip, ridicule. The kind of persecution that leads to isolating those who are not like the rest of the world. It is persecution of this kind, persecution that might even lead to loss of job and income. And it's not that we should never pray for peace, right? I, I, I could be convinced, and maybe I'm, perhaps I'm wrong, but in my study of the Scriptures, I don't see anywhere where we should be praying for persecution, but rather, the, actually, the Scriptures tell us to pray for the opposite. Right? First Timothy 2, verse 1 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. The pattern that we see in the New Testament is that when there is persecution, right, God's people run, right? Naturally so. The early Christians, they were dispersed because of persecution. What is the pattern in the Apostle Paul's life? He continued, I mean, sometimes he walked into persecution, but many times he also fled from persecution. And so it is right and good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, that we actually do pray fervently for peace, that we might lead a quiet life. Now, the reality is that there is persecution, and some are persecuted more than others, some to a greater degree and some to a lesser degree. And to some degree, you perhaps have already experienced the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe relationships have been severed. Maybe there's been a loss of reputation. Regardless of what those experiences were for you or are right now and where you land according to the will of God, the Scripture's exhortation to us is that we might not be surprised when we do experience persecution. So it is the reality of affliction that comes in the form of persecution that generates the psalmist's desperate plea to God, which then moves us secondly to consider the plea, to consider the plea of the psalmist. In the passage, he says, hear a just cause, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer, let my vindication come, let your eyes behold the right I call upon you, incline your ear to me, hear my words, show your steadfast love, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, those who persecute and those who are wicked, deliver my soul from the wicked. Around 15 times, the psalmist makes this plea to the Lord in different words, deliver, O Lord, deliver, deliver, answer, come, come, come. 
And in this way, we know just how desperate he is. I mean, consider the desperation that someone like Theodore Beza must have experienced to have been delivered from the Lord 600 times in his life. Could you imagine what that man's prayers must have been like in crying out to the Lord repeatedly, day after day? Or take, for instance, the parable of the persistent widow, which some of you probably are familiar with. The widow who continued to plead time and time again, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. You certainly know what it's like to be desperate. When affliction comes as a robber and thieves away your joy. Or you can experience desperation when your children become too much to handle. You have nothing left to give. When you perhaps once again hurt those whom you love and you cannot find a solution to the problem of your anger or jealousy or lust or whatever that thing is. You feel a sense of desperation when you feel as though the devil has launched his volley of rockets upon your life without respite. When you are on the run again from family and friends who want your head because you bear the name of Christ, that may not be your reality, but that certainly is the reality of many brothers and sisters in different parts of the world. There are some seasons when you feel as though you have nothing left to give, but just these buckets full of sorrow and desperation that you draw from the wellspring of affliction and sorrow and distress. And we cannot understand all the ways of God. We cannot understand why certain things are happening. We cannot understand how the Lord might be working. But the scriptures don't call us to understand. But the scriptures call us to pray, and to beg, and to plead, and to cry out in desperation to the Lord. If I take a lesson from the parable of the persistent widow, to continue to pray and pray and plead and beg and ask for the Lord to deliver. And by the way, what does it look like to be a faithful friend? Perhaps you have no words to help those that you know are in a season of desperation, that words just don't quite, are not quite there. You don't know exactly what to do to help someone feel better or to help alleviate their distress. Sometimes being a faithful friend is just to walk with them and take one of those buckets of sorrow that they're carrying in their hand and go with them to the altar of grace and pour those out in tears with them. There's something else to consider about the psalmist's plea. His pleas are not bellowed out and left out there in the sky to hang in thin air as like a, like a kite without strings. Consider the remarkable ground of his plea. 
He says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. So he's proclaiming an innocence. He's proclaiming a blamelessness. Listen to my cries, O Lord, from someone whose lips are free from deceit, from someone who is blameless. Now, he's not proclaiming sinlessness. That's not what he's doing. There's a difference there. What he's doing is that he's coming before the court of law with God as the judge, and what he's presenting is the good record of his life. It's not a record that doesn't show sinlessness, but is a record of right doing a record that shows a pattern of righteousness. It's remarkable that he would come before the Lord and ground his pleas in that way because I think that's something that is strange to us. I think for most Christians, we would hesitate to ground our prayers before the Lord in that way, to appeal to our righteousness, to appeal to our pattern of right doing. And we hesitate making pleas on such grounds for at least a few reasons. One, I think, because we just don't do it in general. Generally speaking, we lift up our prayers to the Lord. We make a request known to God, but we have sort of a pattern of not really grounding them in anything. Another reason might be because we're just unfamiliar with the promises of God. There are numerous promises written for us in the Scriptures, and one of the reasons why they're written for us is so that we may use them to ground our prayers before the Lord. So that if we're praying for peace, we can say, God, your word says that you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed or fixed on you because he trusts in you. Lord, I am trying as hard as I can to keep my mind on you, to keep my mind fixed on you. So please give me your peace. But we must become familiar with the promises of God because they can help us ground our prayers before the Lord. Another reason why we might hesitate in grounding our prayers before the Lord, especially when it comes to the way in which the psalmist does, is because we are afraid to do so. Because we are afraid that if we lift up our prayers and requests unto the Lord, we might nullify that prayer request by grounding it in our own righteousness because what we have a tendency to do is not think about the righteousness that we have in Christ, but we tend to think of our sins. We tend to think of our shame. We tend to think of our regret. We tend to think of the sins of today or yesterday or a week ago or a month ago or even from years ago. And all we can do is accuse ourselves. And in that sense, we do a much better job at accusing ourselves than the devil does because that is his title. That is his role. In the court of law, there is the devil with his arms behind his back, with his feet up on the table and not having to do anything because we're pretty good at accusing ourselves and thinking about how much we don't measure up and how much we sin and how weak we are and how often we get things wrong. We tend to think that the opposite of sinful is sinlessness, but that isn't the case, not according to the Scriptures. 
the opposite of sinful is righteousness. The psalmist is appealing to the pattern of his life because he wears a righteousness that comes not from his own works, but comes from believing and trusting in God. And for us, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ who stand on this side of the cross, we have even all the more reason to appeal to righteousness because we have a righteousness that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. We have a righteousness that comes to the death and resurrection of Christ. And the scriptures encourage us to ground our appeals before the Lord in that kind of way. In John 14, 13, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. All right, many of us are familiar with this. When we pray to the Lord, we say, In the name of Christ. That is a way of appealing to the Lord Jesus. What is his name? His name represents all that Jesus is. It represents all that Jesus has done. And so when we pray to the Lord and we say, we ask this, Lord, in your name, we are appealing to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's died and rose again for sinners. And we're making our appeal on the name of the Lord Jesus. In 1 John 3, 22, this is very similar to what we see the psalmist doing in, John, in Psalm 17. It says that whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments to do what pleases him. So if we keep the commandments of the Lord and we strive to please the Lord in all that we do, this actually can help us in our prayers to the Lord. We can use these things to ground our appeals before the Lord and have this confidence that God hears us and that God will respond. The Lord doesn't want you to be unsure of the righteousness of Christ. The scriptures don't want you to be unsure of your salvation. But it actually wants you to be confident in your salvation. And in that confidence, come before the throne of grace and confidently appeal to God based on right doing. If, in fact, you have been walking in the commandments of the Lord, right? If you haven't been and you haven't been striving to please the Lord, then you have reason to doubt. So as he grounds his appeals, he appeals on right doing. The psalmist also makes his appeals grounded in God's character. Verse 7, he prays, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. The psalmist knows that the Lord is a God of steadfast love. And that steadfast love has an object. That object is you and I. He knows that the Lord is a savior to all those who seek refuge in him. An example that we see of this elsewhere is in Genesis chapter 18, when the Lord is talking with Abraham 
and disclosing what he's about to do and going to Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness and considering destroying both cities. Abraham, knowing that his nephew is in the city, makes an appeal to God. Genesis 18.25, Far be it from you, says Abraham, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He's appealing to the righteousness of God, that God is a righteous judge, and that he will do rightly, and that is delivering those who are also righteous. The psalmist also grounds his appeals on relationship. Verse 8, he says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. The apple of your eye. It's actually a Hebrew expression. It means to be focused on, to watch with intent. To say that someone is the, is the, the apple of your eye is to say that you value this person above all things. It literally means the little man of the eye. What that means is that if, if you've ever been close enough to a person, face to face, so close that you could actually see your face or reflection in the eye of the other person, that is the idea here. The psalmist is asking, keep a vigilant eye upon me. Be that close to me, to where I can see my reflection in your eyes, O Lord. Do not lose me. Cover me like a hen covers her chicks. An example of this we see in the New Testament, Matthew 7, verse 7. And by the way, all these, all this grounding that the psalmist uses to plead to the Lord are there for us to use as well. It's teaching us how to pray. Matthew 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Sometimes when my children want something, they'll come to me and say, Dad, can I have candy because you love me? That's a good reason, for sure. And if I decide not to give you candy, it doesn't mean I love you less or do not love you. But it's very similar to what the psalmist is doing and what we see here in Matthew chapter 7. It is an appeal grounded on God being a good and loving Father. That when we come before the Lord and make our appeals before the Lord and our requests known to the Lord, we can trust that He will answer and He will give us good things. And those good things might not be what you think are good things, but regardless, whatever, or whatever way He answers your requests, the promise is that as a loving and gracious Father, He will give you what is good for you. He grounds his appeal also with personal commitments. Verse 3, he says, I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. 
Verse 4, with regard to the works of man by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. So it is not enough to ground our pleas and our requests before the Lord in all these manners or in all these different ways. But there also has to be a commitment to repentance. The nature of repentance is a turning away from sin and a turning towards the Lord Jesus. But when there is no commitment in our hearts to follow the ways of the Lord, to pray and plead before the Lord, it's like making your requests known to God with hands open, pointed heavenward, with another hand behind your back with fingers crossed. But there must be a commitment to continue to follow the ways of the Lord. And so as the psalmist grounds his pleas before the Lord, let us also not be afraid to ground our pleas before God in similar fashion. Right? Christ Jesus died for you. He paid his own precious blood in order to make a way for you and I to come before the throne of grace, for us to be adopted as children of God so that we can have this freedom, this privilege of coming before the Lord and making our requests known to him without fear of rejection, without fear of being cast away. So having considered the ground of the psalmist's plea, lastly, let us consider the the telos of the plea or the end of the plea, not the finality of the plea, but what does ultimately the plea lead to? The psalmist is in dire affliction. He trusts in the Lord. He cries repeatedly unto God for deliverance, for answer from above, for protection, for preservation. And he grounds his prayers on his personal commitment, on his relationship with the Lord, on the character of God. But what confidence does he have that God will actually deliver? What confidence does he have that God will actually answer his prayers? What confidence should you and I have that even if we make such appeals and ground them in the same way that the psalmist does, what confidence can we and should we have that God will actually answer and deliver? We can have confidence that God will hear and that God will answer when we remember and believe that God is righteous and he always comes to the aid of the righteous because that is his pattern, because that is what he always does. And Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 says, The rock, speaking of the Lord, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. It is just and it is right that God come and deliver all those who are righteous. Not righteous in and of themselves because of their own works, but righteous through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The value of something is oftentimes determined by what you're willing to give up or what you're willing to pay to have whatever object it is. Would you ever expect that the Lord would ever lose sight of those for whom he paid a high price to save and redeem? 
No, don't misunderstand me. My intention is not to sort of make much of us and say, oh, God is, it loves me and cares for me, and I am high and holy, and I am worthy to be saved. That's not the case there. That's not what I'm trying to say. Ultimately, we know that first and foremost, Christ Jesus came into the world to redeem sinners, first and foremost, for his glory. But he also certainly did so because of love. Because he came and he died for those whom he loved. We can expect that if he pays such a high price to redeem us, that he will also keep us and keep a vigilant eye upon us. And if the Lord knows how to save us from the judgment and wrath of God that our sins deserve, then we can also expect that he will continue to save us and deliver us and things that are nowhere near the gravity of being saved from the judgment and wrath of God. If God can provide the greater deliverances, then he can certainly provide the smaller deliverances. 2 Peter 2.4 speaks of this pattern of God saving the righteous. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept unto the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment unto the day of judgment. The Lord knows how to rescue the righteous because he knows how to do it. He's had many years of practice in doing so, and he continues to deliver and rescue even to this very day. And that is the confidence that we can have that God will continue to deliver us and come through for his people. Now, pay attention to this last verse. And it is here that we see what our pleas before the Lord ultimately lead to. Verse 15, it says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And before that, it tells us about the wicked and how their womb is filled with treasure. Their bellies are satisfied with the riches of the world. And they're satisfied with children, children that they can pass on their inheritance to, their treasures to. And it seems to tell us also that the Lord seems to be the one who provides graciously for the wicked. And we might ask, well, Why? How is it that the wicked prosper and his righteous people suffer? Perhaps one of the reasons why God might graciously provide for the wicked is to, as a form of his judgment. Jesus says in the Gospels that it is very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that? Because he has his eyes set on the treasures of the world and considers those things much more valuable than the treasure of Jesus Christ. 
Because as long as he is fully satisfied with the, la- with the fruit of his labors in this world, then less likely is he able to see his great need for the righteousness of Jesus Christ and to be saved also from the judgment and wrath of God. Beware of living your life like the ungodly who store up wealth and treasure in order to make for themselves a life of, plea, of ease and pleasure. Jesus might say, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And that's the reward of the treasures. If you aim for treasures and pleasure in this world, that is all that you will get. But we see in the passage as it concludes is that there is something far better that is awaiting those who wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That there is a greater reward coming for those who continue to commit their ways unto the Lord. While the wicked are satisfied with the treasures of this world, the righteous, instead, it says, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the great reward of the righteous, and that is that they will one day see God. And they will behold him, and they will be transformed into the very image of Jesus Christ. That is what we have to look forward to. That is what we strive for. This is what the Puritans and many others call the beatific vision. That is the vision of God. Revelations 22.4 speaks of this vision. It says that they, the Christians, the righteous, will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. 2 Corinthians 3.18 also speaks of this vision. It says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you realize that what you behold today through the word, is greater than what Moses beheld up on the mountain when he asked to see the glory of God and what he was able to see was just the back of God. What you behold today is the glory of Jesus Christ. Every time you open up his word, you see the glory of Jesus Christ. And every time you behold the glory of Christ, you're being transformed from one degree of glory to another until one day you will see the glorious Christ and be perfectly transformed into his image, and be satisfied with the sight of God. This beatific beatific vision is a transformative vision. It is the vision of seeing God repeatedly and being transformed every time you behold the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the sight that makes happy. Jonathan Edwards wrote of this vision. He says, how good is God? that he has created man for this very end, to make him happy in the enjoyment of himself, the Almighty who was happy from the days of eternity in himself, that he might make them blessed in the beholding of his excellency and might this way glorify himself. This is the sights that we look forward to. This is the great treasure that we desire to have. It is the transformative sight. It is a sight that makes happy. This sight of Jesus is a sight of Christ, a transformative sight that turns the tears of sorrow into tears of joy. It is a transformative sight that turns depression into celebration. 
a transformative sight that it turns exhaustion from running the difficult race to peaceful rest. There's a transformative sight that turns pain into restoration, that turns instability into security, that turns illness-stricken bodies into perfected bodies. It is a transformative sight that turns pleas into shouts of praise, that turns dishonor into glory. That is what we have to look forward to. That should be the great desire of our hearts as we continue to make our pleas before the Lord, as we continue to cry out to Him. Every cry and every plea unto the Lord is ultimately a cry for this, that God would bring us to the day that we behold the Lord Jesus Christ and be satisfied in His likeness. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in hearts. For what? They shall see God. Why should we ever expect that God would bring this about? If this is ultimately what we are after, what we long to have and be satisfied with, what confidence can we have today that God will bring this about and preserve us and keep us until the day that we behold the glory of Jesus Christ the confidence that we have is that God is a righteous God. And it is right that he should bring us to behold the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we long for the day when When the trials are over, when the seasons of distress and the seasons of suffering have finally come to an end, where there is no more persecution of the righteous, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come. Lord, help us, give us the strength to continue. Give us the endurance to continue to run the race. Lord, when we have nothing left to give, help us to press on and press into the kingdom just a little bit more. Renew us day by day. Help us to continue to look to your word to be encouraged by the promises that are contained in it so that we might continue to be reminded of the gospel and behold the glory of Christ and gradually transformed into his image. Help us, we pray, we plead in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen, church. Let's uh, stand in response of the message. Let us uh, sing together one more time. Amen. By grace alone, somehow I stand. Where even angels. Fall.
Father, you're worthy of our praise. And today, God, I pray that, that as we sat under your word today, that we may consider, Lord, your promises to encourage us, Lord, to carry our pleas to you, Father. God, may we seek your righteousness confidently and with full assurance because of your promises. God, I ask you that you may teach us to learn how to ground our prayers through your word, Lord. Father, you are the righteous one. You are just and upright. And Lord, you're the only one that we can trust as, as you're always faithful so, Father, may we, may, may we find the confidence to approach your throne, as we just sang, and to be satisfied in you, Lord. God, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, may the God of peace be brought... Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Church, God bless you. You're dismissed. Uh, of course. Actually, bridge. So one, two.